How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Star Show Podcast, episode 218. This is an exciting one, Zeke. Yes. Why? Because it's us. Oh, and, okay. And we're, every week's exciting, Zeke. Yes. Yes. And we're doing an Oscar, f- an Oscar <laughs> winning film. That is true. An Oscar winning documentary on the show. Fresh off the Golden Award. The, the, the Golden statue, Award. Were you trying statue? to say Golden Globe and you forgot? No, 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 okay. no. I, say, I think I think Award just felt lazy. I think Golden Statue is probably more what I was trying to yeah. get at. I got there in the end, Zeke. Eventually. Doing good, Jake? Yeah. I'm, I'm doing great. I think. <laughs> I think. I think. Do you still, have any... Still broke, but that's okay. Yes. <laughs> As we all are. Do you have any fun trivia facts from the film of the week, the 2020 film, 2022 film, mm. Navalny? Yeah, I do, and it's funny because this isn't a very fun story. No, a lot of the topics and, and themes around the story, but my fact is quite fun because I noticed this on the Wikipedia page. Zeke. It said the film was edited by Maya Hawke. I was like, "What? No, it is not Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman's daughter, Maya Hawke. It is a totally separate person with the same spelling, who's exclusively a feature and documentary editor, and actually was nominated for four awards for this very film." Wow. Yes, I, d- I thought that was quite a, as you put it, a fun fact. I thought it was quite fun, Zeke. Yeah. a lot of fun discovering that. Yes. You know, I There's check a lot of IMDb and, and Wikipedia. Zeke, do you have any fun facts for the film? Yeah, during the film's making, uh, its team referred to it under the working title, Untitled LP9. Producer said that it alluded to the nickname they've seen Russian security agencies use for the Novichoke, which oh, is Love Potion number nine. So, um, obviously, plays into the film of the week, Novichok. Kind of a key part of this story, as well as <laughs> the use of uh, spying on people's data and chatter. So, yeah, Which is always fun to do. Yes, but Jake, obviously being a 2022 <laughs> release, it is not on the film poster behind us. Jake, would you include Navalny in your 1,100 films to watch before you die? Um, This is a tricky one, because I actually... I very much enjoyed the film. I think it's very well made. I think it's it's a very important film in terms of modern political warfare and, and mm-hmm. this idea of investigating truth in a time of fake news. And there's a lot in here to digest. That being said, I don't quite know if I would put it on my poster. And it's it's one of those things where when I think of this list of films you must watch, there what is the criteria for that? And I think a lot of what this film does, which is you know, telling a very real story, mm-hmm. very real themes and ideas about the way we should navigate the world today. I mean, that is a, a big key part of why it should be on that list. But that being said, I just... I don't know. I, I feel like there are stories out there that may be a, a little more universal. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And and the more I think about it, this idea of, like, would I put it in my 1100 Films poster, I'm actually... I don't know. I'm thinking this might be a segment we might start to phase out soon, but specifically because of films like this, where just I feel icky saying no to a film. Would but would you put it on your list, Zeke? No. Okay. That makes me feel a little better, rather. Yeah, I think this, and we're gonna we're gonna sort of dive into it in the second half of the show. Sure. I think obviously documentaries like this, like you said, are very important. Um, it's that investigative journalism mm. aspect of documentaries and. Definitely has its uh, interest factor and its moments, but overall, I, I walked away from the film a li- uh, not deflated, but a little underwhelmed. I th- um, underwhelmed. We'll talk, wow. Okay. We'll talk about it in the second half of the show. Sure. But Jake, before we get there, hmm. have you watched anything in the last week? I've watched quite a bit. 
I actually, I did a lot of uh, ticking boxes. Like, I finished a lot of things off Seek. I mentioned yes. a couple of weeks ago a book I was reading, Audientology by Kevin Gotez. I finally finished that book. Uh, for those who don't know, it's about the the entire idea and, and industry behind screen testing, mm-hmm. which is something that we don't really talk about much when we watch films, especially American films, and it is a very much an American business. Like, this book talks about many, many famous films, Jaws, Titanic, Driving Miss Daisy, Fatal Attraction, Paranormal Activity, Pink Panther, Good Will Hunting, La La Land. Believe this, Zeke. No, mm-hmm. no, no clue. The original test screen for La La Land did not have the opening number in it. That's wild. That is absurd to me. And they basically learned from screen testing is there was no musical number for like 20 minutes in the film and people were very confused when the characters started singing and dancing. So they figured, okay, well, let this thing that we've shot, this monumental piece on a highway, let's put it right at the start. Which, it almost feels so perfect, I can't believe they had yeah, it always the tone. planned to do that. Yeah, So there's a lot of cool stories like that uh, interwoven into the book and and they are categorized by the kinds of problems test screenings solve and sometimes they're there just to prove a point to a director mm-hmm. who refuses to believe their problems so the producer's like alright let's do a test screening and we can prove through real people what the problem is that we already know of uh, but a lot of times people don't know what the problem is and, and they use it to figure things out and I love that it, it tackles each aspect of filmmaking like for Thelma and Louise that it, it's like they talk about how editing is used to, to fix the problem where someone mm. will literally sneak into the projector booth and physically cut the ending of the film. And that ends up being the iconic ending to that film that we all know today. Or how just changing the song that plays at the start of the film in Moonstruck completely changes the tone and the reception to the film. Mm. Uh, so it's not just like going back and reshooting things and changing things. It's like some very clever little tiny tweaks in editing and music choice and all of that. And that's a great book. I, I really recommend it. And, and like I said, it does... Um, reinforce this idea that you know we have this perception of films we watch and love and the way we critique them and we look at Rotten Tomatoes and Letterboxes like our judge for what the audience thinks but yeah. you read books like this that are so like in Hollywood and you get a bit of a idea of the, the mindset that a lot of these producers go in and they talk about a film like Immortals from 2011 that you know has like a 2.6 on Letterboxd or 49% Mm. on Rotten Tomatoes, but is pegged to success because it was a film that didn't test very well, they made changes, it tested well, and then it made $226 million. And it's like, that's a film we would probably watch and be like, ah, it was boring, we didn't like it. When there's a lot of people in Hollywood who'd be like, no, that film was a tremendous success and was like a big deal for our company. So it's 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 interesting the re-perspective it does yeah. from that standpoint. Uh, the other thing I finished, and I know you still haven't finished it yet, The Last of Us... What? Yeah, I just, I just don't know what... It's, it's been a busy week, yeah, okay. I guess. I watched other stuff, so... Yeah. Um, it's not overly intrigued to see how it ends, or...? Look, I mean, after episode seven, I thought it was good. Um, been a, Yeah, it's been a weird sort of week. I just don't remember seeing... Having a lot of time. I think I've been very tough. We're at that time in term mm. where you're absolutely cooked. Yeah. You just... You come home, like... It's like today, recording, straight home, sleep. Yeah. Rinse and repeat, but Monday's um, always a bit tricky like that. Yeah, <laughs> for it's us, fine. it's everything though. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's um, but yeah, um, I am intrigued. I probably will go home and watch episode eight tonight. Okay, um, hopefully endeavour to have it by two nineteen all done. Give myself some homework. Mm, yes, very good. Because I remember last week I was literally halfway through watching the last episode when we had to start doing this podcast. So I amply paused it and and let so it go. So, what were your thoughts? 
Yeah, so I think, and I'm, I'm not going to talk too specifically about the last two episodes that you haven't seen. I obviously don't want to spoil the ending for you. It is virtually a shot-for-shot remake of the game by the end point. Like, there's obviously examples of the show deviating, especially the whole um, Bill and Frank storyline. probably the biggest deviation from the games in terms of the story, but... Uh, in terms of the story beats and even just the shot composition and the editing and the pacing is so much like beat for beat the game in these mm. last cut. And I think because the game's ending is so, so strong um, that I, I think it was quite smart for them to do that. That being said, and I'm going to talk a little bit more vaguely about this, you know, the potential next season. They are doing a new season. They are going to be adapting part two of the mm. game, which is obviously very, very controversial. I love part two. The way I would pitch it to people is that I love the first Last of Us so, but very inwardly, and like it's something that warms my heart. That story, and I love Part Two outwardly in, in terms of I appreciate what they went for it. I prefer the first over the second, but I think it does a lot of things that people didn't give it enough credit for. Uh, we're very upset about narrative choices as opposed to like what they're trying to do thematically and structurally with the story. So I'm very, very intrigued how they tackle that with Season 2. And, and they've admitted they're going to do multiple seasons that tackle just that second game, which I think is very smart. Because, yes, it is longer. I think there is a world where you can cover Part 2 in one season. But, you know, for a show like The Last of Us that is taking advantage of its television medium where we are removed from the perspective of Joel and Ellie, there's non-linear time jumping in the narrative. And sometimes we go back to 2003, sometimes we go back into the present and taking advantage of all those things that the games can't do, mm. I think it makes sense to let season two and three and et cetera breathe and tell this much bigger story of part two. So um, how, how many seasons have they said part two is going to be? It's said it'll be more than one, okay. which I think very clearly means at least two or yeah. just two because it, there's a very clear point in the second game where it's a very clear midpoint. Yeah, cool. And I could totally see being, okay, well, the midpoint is the season finale and then the yeah, second half is and, season three. Uh, Three seasons, you can tell the story in three seasons. I mean, like Absolutely. we've just been talking about Ted Lasso only having three seasons mm-hmm. and, and Succession only having four. Yep, which so, is very, very close. Yeah, we're we'll talking that next week. Yes, next Monday. This time next week, we'll be watching Succession season four, which is very. We have to exciting. wait for two twenty to talk about it. Really. That's all right. Yeah. Unless we catch it really early. Unless I skip work. <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> it never bloody happens, Zeke. I'm always going to work on a Monday. That's yes. okay. Zeke, I, I watched one other thing, but I'll, I'll throw it over to you. Have you been watching anything in the last week? Yeah, so I had a nice little uh, was it, uh, cheese board charcuterie night with movies. With, oh, very uh, good. Lucinda. <laughs> and yeah, look, we, we chose to sit down and we were sort of debating what we wanted to watch. And I was like, I kind of want to watch a blockbuster. But like, okay. I'd like to watch something f- new that I haven't really watched. And mm. I've never actually seen any of the Mission Impossible films, bar really? the later ones. So that's easy because I think I've only seen the first two or three. I've never seen the the later yeah, ones. Yeah, I've seen Ghost Protocol and I've seen Fallout. Yeah, we went and saw Fallout together. Uh, no, I've I never it seen with, it. Saw it with Jack. Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Um, but I'd never seen the originals, and I was like, well, it's, you know, it feels like. I mean, we have this franchise that basically is Tom Cruise doing this stunt or this stunt or that stunt. <laughs> I want to see where this all started. Yeah, and for sure. So I sat down and watched the first two and I'm about halfway through the third one. And Very nice. Yeah, look, I wasn't really a big... The first film is very strangely paced. Okay. Um, 
Have you seen... You've seen the first one. It's been a while, so I don't remember much about it. Um, very good set pieces, but it doesn't have the same sort of... I think it has serious pacing issues compared to something like Ocean's Eleven, mm. which does have heist elements. And, and the first Mission Impossible is very much a more heist film. Yeah, I know. It's definitely film. a lot more grounded. Well, not... Yeah, like there's not as many like big practical giant yeah. stunts that bar the the doing. final climactic. Sure, I remember the train train sequence. sequence. Yeah. The film is quite subdued. It's it's very much an espionage based film and and heist based film and. Um, it's probably De Palma, isn't it? Yeah, it's the De Palma. And, one, and yeah. I think what I actually found the most fascinating, which which sort of leads into what I found really interesting, even watching the first two and then half of the almost all of the third film. Is it's three completely different directors, and all mm. three of them are tone a tonal whiplash. It's like interesting, you know. The first film's a De Palma film, so it's a it's a little bit more racy. It's got very strong male characters, mm. little odd on the female characters and casting. And okay. then you move to the second film, and it's a John Woo film. And um, to be honest, I wasn't super familiar with a lot of John Woo films. Um, and I had to Google it, and to be honest, a lot of them, I, I couldn't really pick any of his, uh, a lot of sort of B-movie, mm. action movies. Um, like, I mean, his most famous film other than MI2 is, is Face Off, and oh, Face okay. Off is That's kind funny. of and a, a little bit absurdist, there's some strange, I mean, it's a fun film, don't get me wrong, yeah. I like Face Off, but it is quite, and then a lot of the rest of the films are very, like, sort of B-action movies, so... And and the second film takes solely, pretty much sole place in Australia, in Sydney. Yeah, and I, I definitely remember that. I remember the Australian money you see at one point. And it's... I just it's, remember, like, little flashes and, and images of it, but I've always remembered that that takes place in, yeah, Sydney, wasn't it? And it has it has the feel of, um... Oh, I'm forgetting his name now. Who did the Hulk with Eric Banner? Oh, Ang Lee. Ang Lee, yeah. It does yeah. Have, I mean, it still has that Ang Lee essence. Because yeah. there's these weird sort of, like... Not quite related crossfades. The, the it had that same sort of angry right. Hulk vibe to okay. it. Okay, was not. I mean, I was probably as big a fan of the second film as, as the first film. I thought both of them were sort of. They just didn't do it for me. And then the third film, up until the point, it's a J.J. Abrams film. So it's a completely different... Oh, my God, it is too, yeah. It's directed by J.J. Abrams. So you have these... The led, oh, my God. There needs to be a... What do they call it? A warning for um oh, photosensitive like viewers epileptic okay because that opening sequence it's just flashing flashing oh it's flashing. insane yeah wow but it's such a fascinating three films because all three of them are so unique mm. they're not they're That's kind only of exciting th- in a lot of only ways. thing that they share is the name and tom cruise yeah the casts are essentially different i mean there's a little overlap in all three one reoccurring character other than um, Tom Cruise. Um, but other than that, it's, yeah, it's essentially, it's three tonally different films that it's funny now because obviously in a post, I'm not sure who does the the um, modern day uh, Mission Impossible films, but they definitely It's kind of like Harry Potter. I feel like they've chilled similar. out and, and it's the yeah. same director doing a few of them now. Christopher McGuire. Rogue Nation. And then where's Fallout? Is Fallout the fifth one? Oh, it's him again. Oh, well, let me click on his name. Oh, so he's doing all of them. So he's done He's doing the, the last... new one. He's doing the new one as well. The Dead Reckoning Part 1. 
And Brad Bird was the Ghost Protocol one. That's so, right, Brad Bird did do one, yeah. So that's really interesting. So, but they've clearly switched to it's, having this. They've got to be more of a consistency, there yeah. Because of, which watching... I, which makes sense because when you think of Mission Impossible, like you're like you're saying, they're also stylistically different the first ones, and now you kind of consider the more recent ones as a bit more of a unified, you know, yes, spectacle chasing visual uh, venture so to speak. Is it, and I ask this not having seen any Bond films, I know, I know, forgive me everyone, is it similar with the Bond films where it, it feels more like a unification more recently as opposed to the early Bond films where did those try to feel very tonally different in each one? Yeah, it's very interesting. I haven't watched a lot of the early Bond films okay. and the only reason yeah. I really picked up on this was because we were watching them in succession. Right. Um, and it was like, from the first film to the second film, it was like, wow, that was really different like seeing De Palma's knowing mm. what De Palma's sort of directorial style's like and then going to John Woo who I wasn't really familiar with and yeah. and and seeing a completely different take and having different villains and obviously the setting of Australia is so obscure even mm. at the time and having the whole film set there not just a set piece just this film takes place in Australia which made all of the guns really weird because I was saying to Lou as we were watching it I was like like it's so funny because this film's set in two thousand and one, or and you know poured up band, yeah, yeah after the ban, and they've got guns out the wazoo, and there's these these gas canister cans that have got danger high explosives, and they're shooting. <laughs> it's so cheesy versus in the first film that yeah. is quite espionage and a little bit more hyper realistic mm. in its in its depiction. But then we get to the J.J. Abrams one, which is the gritty, kind of angsty, okay. like, oh, we're getting serious now. And, you know, it's got <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman as the, the main villain. So even, like, the oh, campy, cool. the, the not campy villain having this way more subdued villain, which brings up in the more modern Bonds, you know, how the villains, you know, obviously the two films that people like the most out of the Daniel Craig Bonds are Casino Royale and Skyfall. In which the villains. villains are the least comical, I believe. Mm. They're the the escapades are way more grounded and realist and a bit gritty, especially Skyfall. I was gonna say I actually saw I don't know if there was I think it is the Bond anniversary was pretty recently, but I saw a clip of Javier Bardem and I'm guessing Skyfall. Mm. And it's like this is brilliant. He is so good in that film. Just yeah. from the one scene I saw of him in it. Yeah, that scene. If it's the scene, it's the mice churning scene. I think it's like an yeah. interrogation yeah. thing. He's sitting there. Yeah, yeah, Incredible. Yeah. Um, and it is quite interesting because, you know, I I would have never noticed this if I had watched the films. Like a couple of years apart, yeah. But watching them in succession. So maybe that's worth doing with the, the Bond films too, sitting I've there. I've always, just... always wanted to do that, to watch every Bond film. Because you really finish. start to see a director's voice coming through in a franchise, which I often found quite difficult to disseminate it. I mean, in Star Wars, it's non-existent if it's not a Ryan Johnson film. Mm. I mean... And it, oh, I and think JJ Abrams' Star Wars is pretty easy to identify. Was it? I think. The, I mean, the Force Awakens just a new hope, isn't it? Really? Well, yeah, like structurally, but stylistically, I think it's very. I mean, even just the um, the the the, the lens flare. And yeah, things like, there's little things in there, and the camera movement's all exciting and true. It's in there. It's in there. It's cool. I'm to not watch. saying every one of his Star Wars films are great. <laughs> They're not. But no. Um, but yeah, I, I both, I walked away from both films and I'll definitely probably say the third film is probably going to be the one I like the most, but okay. none of them have really been like, whoa, that was amazing. Not like these new ones that are done by 
Maguire. You said his name was Maguire. 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 Christopher. Chris. Chris Maguire. Maguire. Let's have a look. Quick Google. Yeah. Um, Macquarie. Oh, Macquarie. See, I can't pronounce Macquarie. anything. Beg my pardon. Beg it's actually Christopher Navalny that directed the new... <laughs> and I think what he's done with them, he's kind of brought them into, I guess, the modern age blockbuster. So maybe that's... Sure, yeah. Maybe that's what's happened there. I but... think it's that re-emphasis on like practical stunts and, and Tom Cruise. I mean, it's the Top Gun Maverick effect of everyone was drawn to the cinema because it's like, hey, this is real. Mm. These are real things happening on screen. Yeah. Yeah. And still seeing some of those stunts, like him outside the, the, the plane. plane. Yeah. Stole from Uncharted, but that's okay. <laughs> but still, to actually do no, it. No, it's brilliant. Oh my, oh my god. I mean, we're going to talk about Uncharted plane scenes. We're not going to talk about the Uncharted movie. You're going to be talking about, yeah, Tom Cruise. That is fair enough. Well, I'll jump into this next one I saw. Now, I'm a little annoyed, Zeke, because. Yes. What are you annoyed at? I had two Best Picture nominees from, from this last week's Oscars. Um, that I hadn't seen yet. And I was like, okay, well, I'm more inclined to watch Women Talking because that actually did win for Best Adapted Screenplay. It won something that night. And I'm not kidding, yesterday and today, no sessions. No, none. Anyway, really? I was baffled. There are tomorrow. I can go tomorrow and watch it in the cinema, but I was so confused, especially because the other film, Triangle of Sadness, did have screenings, but you can also just rent it for $7 on YouTube in mm-hmm. high definition. So I'm like... I don't know. What, what, what's what's going on here, guys? What's the prioritization? Anyway, so I watched Triangle of Sadness. Yeah. And I thought it was good. I thought it was all right. I think... I, I'll I'll jump running because this is my first film with Rubik Oslin. I, hadn't, I haven't seen any of his films. I know he did the, um, a bunch of other films that are named after shapes, not just Triangle. But... And I knew going in, this was like a big satire on the rich and like, you know, um, class power dynamics and as it turns out, more about gender and sexual power dynamics as well. They sort of sneak that in. It's actually surprisingly big-scaled because you see the poster, they're on a cruise ship. Like, okay, well, the whole thing's going to take place in a cruise ship. It's going to make fun of, like, rich white people. And it turns out it's actually quite a much more expansive storyline and, and satire uh, than just that. The cruise ship's actually only really a, a small part of a bigger story. Right. Now, I was most intrigued by the, the dynamic between the model boyfriend and girlfriend, Carl and Yaya, um, which is already interesting because in terms of that industry, the film actually makes a point of saying that women typically make three times more than men in this industry. And you have Carl, who's sort of out of the job. He's done, he hasn't had work in a couple of years and he's feeling obviously quite insecure because um, he doesn't have as much money as his girlfriend does. Mm-hmm. And there's a big extended scene where they're arguing who who's going to pay and she's sort of expecting him to pay and then how that leads into gender roles. And it, that, that's all really interesting. And again, that is all more widely expresses more characters come in and we see more of that that satire and to do with um power and wealth and particularly how when they both end up on this cruise for free because she's an influencer so they pretty much just get a free pass to join this cruise and how the servers on this cruise the whole staff they have this um perceived idea of power that all the people on the cruise have and and you know it's instant gratification they must serve every desire that they want and uh, that includes when Carl makes a comment about one of the, the guys working there because he's insecure of his body and Yaya's staring at him, he inadvertently gets him fired. And this is like the power that these people almost unknowingly wield at times and how that extends this this idea of the instant gratification when one of them says, I want all the staff to jump in the pool. And even though that's going to ruin the dinner later and they're all going to have this huge, hilarious scene where they're all yakking and throwing up and stuff spilling everywhere, 
It doesn't matter as long as they're they're uh, appeased now mm. and immediately. So there's a lot of interesting ideas there, and I even found a lot of the camera work quite interesting. A lot of interesting framing. There is a scene Zeke that takes place in a car at night while it's raining. And I made sure to very much study what they did, <laughs> which is really interesting because they had a slider in the front seat, and it would actually slide between the two characters during the conversation, which I thought was quite cool. Although that being said. I think the car driving was probably fake. The more I think about it, it was probably just a green screen background mm. because then the slide is where the driver would be. So it was interesting to watch it from that perspective. So I found a lot of the framing and cinematography interesting from that standpoint or even his use of sound where like a fly will, the buzzing of a fly or like this repetitive um, whistle would come in to sort of intensify an otherwise very monotone um, or monotonally delivered scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing... And I think this might be part of the reason why I kind of walked away feeling a little passive about this film, not being overly like, oh my god, this is great, everyone has to go and see it. I think it was probably one of the weaker Best Picture noms of this past year, is probably the the satirical nature and the humour of the film, which, okay, I liked uh, Don't Look Up quite a bit. I actually thought it was quite fun. And I saw it in a theatre with a big crowd, and that was part of the reason I had a lot of fun. Zeke, Zeke's having a little... <laughs> Something over there. <laughs> Destroy it. Your favorite character was Jonah Hill in that in that film. <laughs> <laughs> this, I hate it so much. Look, I I enjoyed it, but the the humor and the satirical nature of this film reminded me a little bit of Don't Look Up, and in ways that didn't feel overly smart. You know, there's a scene where they're in this um, fashion show and they're they're shifting people out of their seats and pushing them for who's clearly more famous people and that that whole thing while there's giant text in the background flashing everybody's equal so it's not overly subtle in some of those ways and in fact a lot of the dialogue there's quite a few characters in here that it feels like gta mm. where they just kind of go on these big dribbling rants about just like how society works and the nefarious nature of capitalism and advertising all these things. i'm like this feels like trevor phillips talking mm. in gta 5 and in fact to prove a point i want to play a little game with you zeke <laughs> i took a quote from Triangle of Sadness. And I yeah. took a quote from Grand Theft Auto Five. Okay. And I want you to guess which one's which. Okay. I, I mean, I, I don't know how hard this would be. This would be interesting. Okay. Here's the first quote. I'm an Aryan Ubermensch, too obsessed with the image of myself to be involved with anyone with anything that doesn't fit my stylized image of the world. Suddenly, I'm dressed in something way less expensive. It's H&M. Everybody come together. You two can be part of this happy, smiling group of mixed skin colors for not that much money. Hashtag friendship. I'm going to say that's triangle sadness. Okay. Well, I'll read the other quote. Take this fashionably retro weird for a 45-year-old man, but I cannot let go of the 1980s bag and dress yourself up like a billionaire math genius with low-level Asperger's. And I can say that because I actually am autistic. Which one's which, Zeke? I think the second's Trevor. But they're pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will say the second quote is actually from Lester. But you're right, it is the GTA quote. Yeah. And the original was from Triangle. Oh, yeah, Lester did have some good one-liners. Yeah, Lester's got some great <laughs> That's when he's going to the Facebook knockoff. Yeah, yeah. that's it. That's exactly what oh, it comes from. Oh, so good. I found two relatively fashion-based rants. But you, you get what I mean where it's like just saying things. Like calling things out for what they are. It's, like, it's not the most smart type <laughs> yeah. of satire, even though it works and it's funny in the moment. But anyway, um, mm. Triangle Sadness, a lot of interesting stuff in there. It's two and a half hours long, and I think it sort of 
fizzles out quite a lot. I think a lot of the interesting satires in the first half of the film, and and it is interesting because it does like slowly get more primal by the end of the film. I won't spoil obviously what yeah. happens, but I mean primal is a very key word for the way the film progresses or maybe degresses if you want to call it that. But yeah, I walked away being like, I was I was all right, had fun. Yeah, lot to lot to digest. I think. But yeah, I will watch Women Talking very soon. I'm annoyed that I couldn't. And I do want to watch After Sun. I was another one I was hoping to catch this past week, but maybe I'll catch both of them next week. No worries. Well, mm. Jake, do you have any career updates before we move into the second half of the um, show? Not really. Everyone's paid. Post, <laughs> post-production skin blisters. Chipping away. Chipping away. Slowly but surely. Then it is indeed time for us to move into our first of the Countdown Through the Decades retrospective. Oh, no, no, no. That's, that's next week. Oh, that's week. next week. That is next week. Yeah, <gasps> I know. I've done it. We're doing, we're doing two 2020-based films in a row. We're going to watch an Oscar-winning film, though, Jake. Yes, we are. But what are we watching? This week in the show, Zeke, we're watching Navalny. Hello. Vladimir Alexandrovich, this is Navalny. Alexei was disappointed. He wanted to know why you wanted me to kill Remarkably, Vladimir Putin faces a legitimate opponent, Alexei Navalny. Come on. Poisoned? Seriously? We are creating a coalition to fight this regime. If you are killed, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? It's very simple. Never give up. Navalny follows the man who survived an assassination attempt by poisoning with a lethal nerve agent in August 2020. During his months-long recovery, he makes shocking discoveries about the attempt on his life and decides to return home. For some reason. (laughs) Oh, goodness. This film was now, uh, well, was made by Daniel Roja, which... Uh, well, I quite liked the film that he did before this, which was Once We Were Brothers, Robbie Robson and the Band. Oh! So he did the sequel documentary. Which I've seen as well. Look at that. Yeah. Didn't catch that. That's very, that's very good. So, I was a big fan of Once We Were Brothers. Mm. Obviously, though, I I had... You have an affinity for the subject matter, of course. Yes, so affinity for the subject matter, definitely. Um, You were less, less hot on it. That's true, yeah. I guess as a... I mean, it's unfair to call it a sequel to to the the Last Waltz, but I think yeah, what was I, my I, problem with it? You're right. I, I think didn't you just said it wasn't. You said it was because it was more of a traditionalist documentary format. You felt like it lost that magic and that lightning in the bottle. Which, to be fair, hmm. to be fair, is a very valid criticism because documentaries we're, we're sort of spoiled for documentaries. Documentaries normally have to deliver something unique and different and can't always rely, particularly if their subject matter isn't the most interesting, compelling, or contextually relevant, mm. like this film definitely serves to be. Um, it's it's quite interesting, because context is so crucial with documentaries and time and place. Yeah, well, I remember I had to pause this documentary, and I'm talking about Navalny, very early, because I was like, I desperately need to know what date that the, the, the poisoning happens in particular. And it was actually when one of the characters says, like, oh, well, you can't go in here because we have a COVID patient. Mm-hmm. And it's like, having a COVID patient in a hospital in 2020 is drastically different than having one in 2023. No. Not to say that's any less important, but in terms of the relevance and, and the the, re- the excuse, let's call it that, 
to keep someone out of a hospital room, it was incredibly important that context. Absolutely. So I had to pause it and look that up because it's like the the documentary didn't tell me what date that was when that event happened. Yeah, yeah. and that and it is really interesting because it's it is, and that's why I say that. Obviously, I think context, subject matter, and sort of the weight of the world right mm. now definitely elevates this documentary um, to a point of intrigue. I mean, it, it, the investigation side, the 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 leading characters in this, obviously Alexei Navalny being the the titular character mm. and 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 the the one of the main focus. It is quite interesting, sort of how this unfolds and. I think what Daniel um, Rojo has done here, or as, as Alexi says, Daniel, <laughs> um, he's definitely captured lightning in the bottle in the sense that he's clearly seen, this is fundamental of a, of a good documentarian. but mm. He's seen see, a wonderful story, wonderful, you know, more, more like a spectacular political story unfolding, and he's, he's able to capture it. Yeah, and I think that the difference between like a film like this and then like what makes a film like Fire really good is it's mm. the it's the after the fact stylism that makes the film compelling and stimulating to watch because if that film goes too traditionalist in the way it tells, it's not actually that interesting a story, but it's the way it's structured and the way it's paced and the way it builds tension and even the way it visually looks. Mm. It is actually a very pretty film um mm. in terms of its of its stylism and I think what Navalny's trying to do is it's sort of trying to capture some similar elements there, but obviously is way more relying on sort of the footage captured as this investigation is unfolding. And, mm. and we sort of get to look a look into things like how the media cycle works, how distribution of news works, and even how investigative journalism works. Sure, yeah. Um, Especially in the modern day, in a, like I said earlier, in a fake news society that we live in now. I think it's not as compelling as something like Tickled. Um, okay. Which is obviously another... And I think where I come back to is I walked away from this documentary going, there are moments that are, like, amazing mm. and they're, like, hit. But when we hit that midpoint peak, which we'll talk about over this conversation, that, for me, I, f- I think it, it sort of meandered a little bit to meandered to that point and then afterwards it, it definitely climaxed and then sort of came down and I don't think it hit that height to that peak ever again and nor did I ever think it got even close in any other point. Oh well look, I, I actually think the film narratively builds really well because like like you're saying, you look at something like Fire, which is like that whole story is being told in reflection. You have a bunch of pieces of the camera of people talking about you know, who were involved saying, mm. like, okay, well, this is what happened and this is telling it in, in hindsight. And you're right, this documentary focuses way more on the in-the-moment footage. So it feels like it's telling a story without too much hindsight. I mean, I watch this and, and in some ways it really does pay to be politically as ignorant as I am in that I'm watching this not knowing the story. And, like, people around me know the story. They, they saw it on the news and as these things were unfolding. And, and for me to watch a story that took place two, three years ago, and to have that excitement of, mm. oh my god, I don't know what's going on, and I can't wait to see what happens next. So from that standpoint, I think it works really well. And I wasn't really sure that the midpoint is just crazy. Unbelievable. And I don't expect the film to ever top that moment. But that said, I think it builds to the ending and the anticipation of his arrival back to Russia pretty darn well. I was on my, I was on the edge of my seat, because I just didn't know what the, the how it all ended. 
So I I don't know if I'm with you on that one. Mm. I think I think the documentary does a lot of interesting things because yeah yeah it's told in that sort of in the now structure where if if you're an audience movie doesn't know how the story plays you're you're anxiously waiting for the next part of the story to be told. The film isn't trying to trick you into okay well we're going to open with where he is now and then work backwards from that. I actually think that's an interesting structure to go with, but just in terms of what it says about, and you know, like we said, investigative journalism, mm. but in terms of what does it mean to be a person who is fighting oppression is actively being oppressed to the point where people yeah. are trying to murder him. And how do you get your message out in this day and age where everything's fake and everything's doctored and censored and, you know, how do you use things like TikTok, which, you know, we make fun of every day. How do we use TikTok as a real means of messaging when you're you're banned from television and newspapers? Yeah, I think it would have been interesting to... Because f- I, I think what you're, you're doing there is... I think that that's a very valid point, but I don't think that that comes across as much as it could, okay. potentially. I think what you're doing... What I from the film I watched, and I think that Alexei Navalny is a very charismatic figure. Mm. But what would have been really interesting is how that image was constructed and focusing more on, particularly the PR manager and how she sort of okay. created that sphere of influence. Particularly one of the most, I think one of the most impactful and potent scenes actually happens when there's a little break in the interview, but the camera is rolling for a little and bit. He's getting asked questions by the about PR. the main interview. Yeah, yeah, and I think that. The, I would have loved to have seen more of that. How do we shape a candidate like this? At the end of the day, although this man is great and he's fighting oppression and stuff, he is a politician. Mm. We are trying to make him appear good. And even the the whole asking those questions about the upbringing and being like, oh, should we censor him? Should we censor? That's an interesting inclusion, isn't it? Mm. Um, And I, I agree. Like, how do they break through this mold because the media is completely on obviously is putin it's been completely rupert murdoch <laughs> there is no way well, in. The, the very quick thing they do they show you very quick snippets of i guess like yeah russian like talk shows and issues and whatnot and mr. the thing Bo- they do is mr. like Bowtie. mr bowtie mr bloody um peewee herman, P- Pee-wee herman. <laughs> that was definitely the hardest i laughed is when navani was making fun of him that was so funny but no, what they do, especially for a film like this is going to be played to a big Western audience, is have a clip of them, you know, gobsmacked at the idea of homosexuality yeah. and orgies and, and talking about, like, the amount of drugs that are being used and just play that little clip there, show it to a Western audience to be like, oh, well, you know, their political and social political views are so ancient compared to where we are as a Western society now. Yeah. That's how you villainize them very quickly. Yeah. And I don't think... I don't think it takes a lot of work for them to villainize them because it's like, well, they, like you said, it's it's a it's a dictatorship, in masquerading, in, masquerading, as a yeah, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. So there's there's all of that going on in terms of building Navalny up as a as a person. You got that right at the start of the film. You started, yeah. First off, the title of Navalny. It's such a self important title, and you know, it's like the way that that the title for Tar is very like mm-hmm. it's almost making fun of itself. And we look at like the Dark Knight, and all, all these films are very self-serious titles about their mm. protagonist. And it opens up with the question of, you know, what what is your dying message to the people of Russia? And right away he throws it away with making jokes about, well, I want there to be sequels. You know, don't make this about me being dead already. Like, <laughs> so he kind of sets it up pretty quickly. All all the filmmakers set it up pretty quickly. Is this is a guy who's mm. not 
as self-serious as as maybe other people are taking him for. But he's got a playful personality. And like you yeah. said, maybe part of that is just like the film and his publicist and, and his chief investigator, they're all trying to build him up in this certain way. Yeah. Sure. And the film doesn't spend too much time on that, granted. But I think what it does is... Again, going back to this idea of a man with a message, and, and we can all relate to these ideas of, of freedom and you know being against political oppression and, and these people that we, we hate or that are doing these awful things to other societies. I mean, this a lot of this takes place before the whole Ukrainian thing that's happened. I think it's very easy for us to root for him and to appreciate the immense amount of stress and fear that he should, we think he should be under, but isn't. Because he's, he's playing it He's very playful and he's making jokes and making TikToks mm. and, you know, I mean, the whole phone call scene that we're talking about, that obviously we're very anxious to talk about, it's such a great scene, is is based on him basically like, oh, I'm just going to call them. You know, it'll be funny. I'm going to call them and just ask them why they're trying to murder me. I don't think they, for a split second, ever thought they were going to get what they actually got out of those phone calls. <laughs> I mean, is it worth talking about it now, that scene? I think, yeah. I mean, it's the it's sort of the scene that it's the what I was saying. It's it's the apex of the of the documentary. It's this weird sort of they they're talking about. Obviously, Navalny meets this uh, was he Austrian um, Austrian sort of journalist, data mm-hmm. journalist who talks about all of this. Basically, all of this data that gets gathered and he purchases the data and then makes deductions based off that and then yep. up, ends up being this investigation after Navalny is poisoned and he's hospitalized and after only after is he transported out of a German to a German facility do they figure out well he was poisoned yeah but obviously it's their word against their word so they need some more concrete evidence and then this leads to basically creating a finding this team that was charged with killing Navalny, assassinating him <laughs> and just calling them all <laughs> until one of them uh, gives the information up voluntarily. Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting, it is an interesting and easily, I mean, it It would be anyone's highlight scene, I feel like. Yeah, it, no, I've steered away from that being my highlight like, scene. It's very, yeah, it's the obvious highlight scene. It's an amazing sequence. The fact yep. it's all captured and it's got great coverage and the reactions of everyone in the room is yep. just hilarious. And the most important part of all is the fact that they're using Audacity to record the conversation. Yeah, which the is... The wonderful recording program Audacity that everyone should be using. Absolutely. <laughs> Sponsored by the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, Audacity. Yeah. 218 episodes <laughs> in counting. <laughs> but it is it is really interesting because it's such an impactful scene and, you know, you're the coverage makes you feel like a fly on the wall. You're sitting at the table with everyone mm. as this uncovers and you're watching in real time or as close to as real time as they, you know, they dared to present. And it's in the just, edit. it's fantastic. It's like an amazing scene that sort of reveals that he was indeed, uh, he it was an attempt of assassination with poisoning and the poison is an obvious trademark of, of the Kremlin. So mm. everything <laughs> indicates it's clearly, yeah, um, the documentary makes no question of whether the accus- up until this midpoint of the documentary is it like, well, was he actually poisoned? Was something else? It's like it's very clearly like taking this pers- perspective that yes, that's exactly what happened, yeah. and then this is like truly conclusive evidence in in that sense. It is, yeah, it's so riveting. 
it was one of those things because you you texted me the night before. Yes. You made a reference to it. And I didn't know what you <laughs> were talking <Moscow> about. Moscow <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? And then obviously I watched. I'm like, oh, okay, that's clearly what he's referencing. And yeah, just such a fantastic scene. And I think it does say in the end, sort of um, pre-credits, like you know, where are they now? Sort of segment that every documentary has to have, of course. Uh, that ever since that phone call, he's been missing. He's just disappeared, and it's like it leans credence to the fact that because there's always that point you're expecting them to be like, oh, by the way, I was messing with you. I don't know who you are. I've just went along with your weird phone call. You're always yeah. kind of expecting that potential. Oh, this was actually nothing moment, and that never comes. It's like, oh my god, this is this is crazy. And because it's real life, that's what's so crazy about it. But then they acknowledge the fact that when they do eventually publicize it one day after Putin's uh, international address, which I thought was genius. A perfect way to, to, to flip it on the narrative on its yeah. head, but the fact that a lot of media sites do turn around and be like, Oh, well, it's clearly fake because of this reason and this reason, that reason. And yeah, a lot of the Putin administrated sites, yeah, the, the, of that course. sort of side of it. In fact, it's interesting how even what's happening on the on the other side of this, there is that nice thread. And, and to be honest, as I'm talking it out, I'm growing more a more affinity to this to this documentary because there are okay. a lot of tears here but I wished I think for me I wish that they explored some of them more that would take it to that next level this mm. documentary I see the potential for this becoming a lot more than what we, we saw it almost felt like the Navalny stuff was so important to get out there at the time it got out there right. or that we almost lost some of the, the like some of the other substrands that are going on that really take this to becoming a multifaceted documentary and and like you said talking about the western media model versus this mm. eastern european model that's so huge i mean the, the the fact that the big people breaking this the big head honchos are cnn right and you know we're seeing not only are we seeing like you said the the eastern european the russian media respond to this we're also seeing the the us media mm. and it's that us russia media war where we're seeing complete biases on both ends (laughs) with very little and and to be honest and this particular subject matter it's very hard to even favor anything that's coming out of the russian media because of course everything points at them doing the wrong thing so (laughs) almost that subjective discourse of the media is completely uh lost but i I feel like it would have been cool to look at that stuff a little bit more explore it a little yeah i i see where you're coming from because you know there are definitely no footnotes on a lot of what you're talking about there, but nothing more than footnotes. And I think yeah. the one that I specifically wanted to talk a bit about was God. I've got it in my notes somewhere. Even the the, the way Navalny has used YouTube, it's it's very much glazed over in the mm. first ten to fifteen minutes that he great he he had a mass part of his attraction through his YouTube channel and yeah. these TikToks, and I I think that. The this whole building a, a titan out of social media is so interesting to explore in its own right. Mm-hmm. Creating this, it's the the twenty first century Russian revolution trying yeah. to happen here, <laughs> and it's happening through social media. But it's it jumps, it wants to get so quickly to Navalny's poisoned. Let's make this about the investigation of Navalny's poisoning. Mm. That it, by the, I think the twenty minute mark, he's poisoned. So it's like, yeah, you don't even... Which, I feel like we could have focused more on that. Or even like the... It's, it's, I feel like because that is sort of the inciting incident. If you want to look at it, the narrative of this documentary, which is mm. this inciting incident of him getting poisoned, 
and then the majority of it is him going on this uh, with a team going on this sort of investigation uh, or journalistic investigation and then ending with you know obviously what happens is that he's now imprisoned uh, after returning home so I think from from that sort of free act structure if you want to pin it that it makes yeah. sense for the for the poisoning to be quite early in the film but I don't disagree with you that peppered throughout they could have spent more time on that yeah, the social like, media side like of him, it. him doing a, a TikTok and, and talking to his daughter and knowing more about the TikTok. That's a great like, scene. It's a great scene, <laughs> but it shows, like, this guy had to think differently mm. and find a Just different like box to stand on in order to hear, for people to hear his words. Yeah. Because all of the traditional forms of media and promotion and propaganda had been completely and utterly muzzled. Mm. Completely banned from it and... Yeah, like turning to the internet and like you said, TikTok. The fact that he's like interjecting memes as part of his speech and as part of the way of getting the word out. I mean, that is, in this modern age of the web 2.0, that is how you... I mean, I learned... Half the time I learned about celebrity deaths through my Simpsons Facebook page. It's true. It's like through memes and that's how people communicate these days, which is so sad. But it's also the most effective way to do it nowadays because that, I mean, that is how the youth have, you know, combinated their idea of, of translating messages. Mm. And the whole, the whole film is all about a man trying to translate his message. And, and I think that's why it's so clever that at the end of the film, the whole question of what would you say to the Russian people is not only bookended, but it's bookended by allowing him to say that message in uh, Russian. And the fact that he's no longer tra- translating a message for the world, he's actually speaking directly to mm. those people in that language. So I think the fact that the bookends are that, for me cemented that the film is purely about that communication and, mm. and like you said a lot of it is through this postmodern memeology tiktok language but i look i'm i don't disagree with you that i think the film could have lent more into that i just think it could have explored it more i mean this mm. is a 90 minute documentary so it did oh. have the it did have the wiggle room mm. it never felt long-winded it actually went by very quickly no, no it's a well very well passed a paced documentary um so i don't know i think it would have been interesting I think you would need the right pieces to camera for that, though. The It would have been mm. cool to get a little bit, maybe maybe even a little bit more coverage in terms of talking heads. I think, like... Especially... See, I kind of like the lack of talking heads. Well, not not lack of, but I, I like that a lot of the documentary the was... Yeah, like in-the-moment footage. Yeah, we're staying in that production. I think it would have been cool to cover maybe things like the, the news anchor that's there investigating the... the having them come up to the doors and them telling him to tell oh, him yeah, her to F funny. off. And... Well, I wonder how many examples they even had of that happening. Yeah, this is true. This is very if true. If I was that reporter, I would be kind of scared. Very <laughs> like, scared. Who knows what they Very bold. Do. I yeah. know. I mean, oh, even, if, even if the attempt of murder was just plain dumb. Yeah, um, no, that, that is very true. I think... In terms of the investigative side of the... In terms of the presentation... We haven't it, even talked about your funny comment. I have not. No, I should. I'll, I'll end with it. Okay. How's it? I'll end with it. Um, my funny comment, my letterbox review that I haven't revealed yet. But in terms of what does this documentary do other than talking heads and and in the moment, you know, archival footage of the events uh, to highlight the investigatory side of it, and I, they do a little bit. There's there's every now and then you get little graphics of them like clicking on video links that lead to drone footage of of mm. you know important buildings or highlighting spreadsheets that kind of stuff that you might have seen in like don't f with cats that kind of investigatory documentary 
you got the montage as well of Maria, the chief investigator. Very brief montage of when she initially puts up the string board. And even though that becomes like a big part of the setting for a lot of the documentary, I thought that was sort of interesting stylistically. Yeah. But all of this sort of, like you said, it relies on the data research. And that's yeah. a quote that, that's a thesis that's made very early in the film is that in the era of fake news, we can't rely on traditional media. We can only rely on numbers. And that goes back to the very small portion of this film that actually was spent showing how they deduced all the suspects. It's a very brief part of the... They, they skim through it very quickly. They do. And I, I guess that's, that was the point of that interview, was him saying he was surprised how quick it was to do that. But I'm a little bit... I'm more interested in the intricacies of that. Was it, was it not more complicated to do that? We'll never know. I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess not. I thought, yeah, that was fascinating. Uh, personal note, and this is a quote from Navani that doesn't overly tie into the rest of the, the themes of the documentary, but mm-hmm. I, I want to get your take on it as well. Okay. Probably my favourite quote he says in the film is, it's my political superpower, I can talk to anyone. Now, remind me if I'm Ronzi. I think he's talking about this idea that he's getting associated with other people that, that you know, can be misconstrued, not misconstrued, yeah, the- be tied to, like, Nazism, for example. Yeah, they were, he went to a fascist, well, a rally right. that had fascists or yeah. neo-Nazis at, yes. Yes, and, and while I don't think that quote ties super well to the themes of the rest of the film, but I love that idea, and, and that he admits that, is that in today's political climate, this idea of, of listening to people and talking to people as opposed to labeling and categorizing mm-hmm. them and just arguing with everybody, it's a lost art. And that's something that that was one of the I think it's just something they put in there to like reaffirm Navalny's character. But I thought it was a great quote. I thought that was a wonderful thing mm-hmm. for them to to sneak into the docker. Even if it was not the most relevant to like the wider conspiracy yeah. theory that's going on. No, that's yeah. fair. I think that's a good uh, note yeah. to leave on. I will ask, see, yes. before we move on. The other thing as well, the, the film kind of uh, not skips over it, but kind of glazes over a little bit. This is, and we said it earlier with that, the reporter knocking on doors. It's like, there's a lot of scariness and fear that can come with being in this situation, especially Navalny with like a huge target and he said he's already had one assassination attempt on him. Mm. It's proven that for years people have been following him and stalking him. Do you find it interesting that all of the characters in this documentary are relatively unafraid. It is interesting, isn't it? There's a mm. there's a sense there of, and even when you you know you look at the final climactic scene, his. I don't, I don't know if it's a if it's a an array of just courage meets ego meets mm. just a very good poker face, but. <laughs> There's something about him that does really feel unbroken about him. He yep. never feels, even when he's, he's... Throwing up peace signs when he's going to walk into the police van. Yeah, and he's facing 20 years in prison. Mm. And you know, the last shot we see of him is his complete shaven head looking mm. behind bars. And even his family... I mean, we get a small testimonial from his daughter. He's very upset about the idea of losing her dad. But we don't even see too much emotion from his wife. His wife's almost she's as a very strong headed woman and as stoic as he is in mm. that sense. And it is really interesting. Perhaps it's simply just the way they're built. I'm surprised 
you mentioned it that we get that one last look of him with his shaven head. I think it is the last look of the film we get yes. of him, uh, unless it does. Oh, maybe it does cut back to his final, um, uh, his word to Russia that he, that he actually speaks mm-hmm. in his native tongue. So I'll take it back. But we do get that glimpse of him with his shaven head. And early in the film, and again, a part of the reason why I love the in-the-moment storytelling is that when he is hospitalized at the start of the film, we, we go like a good 15 minutes without seeing him. Mm-hmm. And it's because his wife chose not to have any photographs of him because they want to, she wants to preserve the memory of him and, and yeah. the visual of him being smiley and bubbly and happy. So it's interesting that they decided to show that, that skinhead version of him at all. Yeah, because it's almost like the reality set in and... yeah. It is such an interesting... Yeah. I wonder if that's the filmmakers saying that... I don't. I really don't know. I feel like they obviously want to honour her award, and I'm pretty sure she actually did speak when they won the Oscar on the stage, which is so weird watching that speech back, being like, now they're at the Oscars with yeah. Harrison Ford and, and Michelle Yeoh and all and these famous people, and it's like her husband's in a, is a political prisoner. I mean, yeah. that. I mean, hey, you know, when he's in there for 20 years. Eventually, your life... Obviously, she's dedicating her life, and, and his entire team are all dedicating their mm. lives to to freeing Russia and freeing him in particular. But, it yeah, it. I guess at some point, you have to go on for your day. And, and, the, and the thing is, this film's very existence is a middle finger to Putin. Yeah. That's probably half the reason I won the Oscar, but the, the fact that a movie about him trying to get his message out and people trying to... To shun that word and oppress him, the movie's out. It just won an Oscar. We watched it because yeah. this film won the Oscar. It's on SBS on demand for free. Like this is a very accessible film, and it's and I find that all highly ironic, at least toward Putin. Yeah. <laughs> so Jake, hmm. what was your heart scene? Yeah, like I said. I'm going to avoid the phone call. I think. Well, would would the phone call be your highlight scene, or? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's pretty hard to beat, isn't it? It's such yeah. a it's a moment that invokes such a reaction out of you. You you cannot believe it. I I do like the the follow up, like him making the comments, or like 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 you were saying that little mm. bow tie scene where they're <laughs> reacting and he's just making fun That's of hilarious. them. Yeah. And you know there are smaller scenes in there that are really kind of legitimately interesting, like putting the plan together having um how they've tracked all that information how he's derived all that information but mm. yeah it is impossible to meet that scene i think yeah no that's that is totally fair i think and before we move on from that scene i do want to give a shout out and it was on the uh, the imdb trivia this statement that the director had made about the fact that he doesn't speak a word of russian but alas he could still understand the momentous the momentum of what was happening in that scene even though he couldn't understand what they were saying, but just their reactions and the tone in the room, which you imagine must have helped him as a director to try and visualize the scene. Because that right there is a super gripping radio play. But how do you make that visually interesting? And for him, it's it's filming all the reactions. He doesn't know what the words are, but he's able to capture those faces. Mm. So I think I think that was that would have helped him tremendously. Actually, being unable to to understand what was uh, verbally happening in that scene, but I would go to very small little scene. It's just one shot. It's pretty late in the film. It's actually really the moment, at least audibly, when Navalny talks about feeling well enough to return home. And I know we've we've sort of made jokes already in the show, like why why did he go home? <laughs> Yeah, and and but like why? Yeah, 
you know and i I, we, I think that was actually off the show when we talked about this this idea that like you said he's a bit of a martyr so there is that aspect to yeah, it yeah i know they mention it in even in the documentary they talk about him becoming this political martyr and that's mm. the the reason that they didn't want to kill him after he was under the public spotlight having right. him poisoned and die on a flight sure there'd be questions but there's enough there to kind of abscond them whereas like when he was in the russian hospital obviously mm. all of the light you know social media western social media is focusing yep. in international social media so that focus allowed you know spared him his life in an extent but yeah obviously following his very blanket statement it mm. was and i get it obviously it's that question of obviously like you said it's so important that final statement where he's like talking about just keep fighting yeah and that's why he goes back and and despite that it's know, a very noble thing for him to do it is but it's like the whole mateship you know peer pressure we talked about in gallipoli this idea of people being pressured to do this thing that's right when logically speaking it's a very dangerous thing to yeah. do is just go out and get yourself killed <laughs> and, and and obviously you know like we said i think that relationship with his wife is so important mm. and we, we see in one of the final sort of shots, you know, him sitting in court and sending a love heart over to her. And it's a That's very really moving, oh, it's a really moving shot. And it's really interesting. Cause you put yourself in a situation when you, when you see that. Yeah. yeah. It's that point to that, uh, two people who have children have clearly come to a point where they accept that the world around them is bigger than just their family. Yeah. And they've chosen to see that larger world and sacrifice themselves for that larger world. And, mm. Yeah, it'll make him a political martyr, but as, you know, who knows, maybe one day we might be seeing another Nelson Mandela-esque figure rise out of prison mm. years yeah. gone by. And Absolutely. The, I mean, that's the, that's the key to this, is that the story's not over. Yes. Hopefully not. Well, uh, well, Alexi I, thinks I, there's I, a sequel in this. So. Yeah, well, that that's it. We're looking, we're looking forward to that sequel. It's funny because I haven't even talked about the highlight scene yet, but we talk about, you know, what actually spared his life. And he even says it in the in the film. He talks about how, when he realized that it really truly was Putin that would have put the hit on him, how insanely stupid <laughs> of him to have done that because it's almost too obvious. Alas, everyone, leads me to my brilliant letterboxed review of the film, which simply states, Glass Onion, a Navalny mystery, <laughs> see Detective Benyar Blanc uncover a murder conspiracy only to learn that he overlooked his most obvious suspect due to the presumed lack of stupidity. <laughs> uh, if I don't get some likes for that one, I'm going to be very upset, Zeke. No, my highlight scene is the scene when he decides to go home. He thinks he's well enough. But the, the visual that they decide to play over this audio is a drone shot in the snow as he's, like, I guess doing, like, a morning trek to like kind of keep his fitness up. And it's just a beautiful, freezing... Uh, sort of uh, not relaxing but like meditative shot and I love the literal footprints that he's leaving behind and that. that's just like a great composition a great visual that's not as an editor it's not the most obvious shot to play mm-hmm. under the you know I'm fit enough to go home but but it does work yeah. in a lot of ways so carries I, I that think, impact yeah I mean that would be my highlight scene for Navalny beautiful well Navalny is currently out on SPS On Demand for free can you believe it is it going away soon it is going away at the end of the month so if you want to watch this get onto it very quickly get onto it very quickly 
and then you might it might end up it'll probably end up on a streaming service where you have to actually pay for it. So this is your golden opportunity. <laughs> you have two weeks to watch it for free. Speaking of streaming services, Jake, what's new streaming services and cinemas near us? Not a lot actually. You got Elvis, the Zero Academy Award winning Elvis, uh, coming to both Binge and Netflix this week. Oh no! Uh, you got the Ocean's trilogy. We mentioned that earlier. We did, uh, which is coming to Prime this week. Very exciting. And you've also got a new AMC show that's premiering on Stan later this week. It's called Lucky Hank and stars Bob Odenkirk as a problematic English department chairman in an underfunded college. Looks fun. It looks fun. I'm excited. He fights a goose at one point. I did see the trailer. <laughs> Saw the trailer this morning. Went, that seems like a me kind of show to watch. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm excited for it. Uh, that and um, obviously Ryan Johnson's Poker Face. i gotta, yes. I got to start watching that as well. Um, I will say... For those who saw the trailer and it says from the producers of Better Call Saul, don't be fooled. I'm pretty sure Bob Odenkirk is the only producer from Better Call Saul working on this show. So, I think. Don't quote me on that, but it's all it's all advertising, Zeke. It's all advertising. Now, coming to cinemas, actually, we've got quite a few interesting ones here. Maybe we can watch this together, Zeke. Beautiful. John Wick Chapter 4. Yeah. He's the titular character with an ever-increasing price on his head, just like Navalny. Uh, fight against the high table global from New York to Paris to Japan and Berlin. Bit of a globe-trotting adventure, this one. Yeah. It's a um, bit of everything. Is this it? Is this the final one? I Is it? No, I don't. I don't know. I thought there was a Chapter 5 coming. Well, um, the last time we talked about John Wick was on our episode. Yeah. John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. Which very, very early. It was like episode... 17, 18? 19. 19. Good job, Jake. There you go. So if you would like, before going to see <laughs> John Wick Chapter 4, check out episode 19 of the Cinema Sideshow podcast where we talk about John Wick Chapter 3. Yeah, well, we, talk about all, we talk about the whole trilogy. Yeah, we do. Because I watched all three back to back to back. You you talk about Mission Impossible. I watched all of them on the same day for the first time. Yeah. So, so give, that, a, give a that episode a listen if... You're following along at home. That's the one. Also coming to cinemas, you have Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. So excited. What is this? It's a D&D movie. It is? Okay. Yeah, so it's like Chris, Chris Pine. Pine. He's got Justice... What's his name? Justice Crew? Is it Justice Crew? Like, that sounds... The guy who Detective uh, Pikachu. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Cool. He's got a good lineup. And it's like... So it's like D&D... <laughs> d the movie. And I reckon okay. it'll finish with, like, them cutting... So, like, the, the eventual finish, and it'll mm. cut to, like, a bunch of kids playing. Oh, that'd be, that'd be clever. Like, it's if that's not the ending, if it's not, a, like, You're a Lego Movie-esque yes, yes. moment where they cut to the world where they're playing, I you've, you've written the wrong D&D movie. Get me on the next D&D. <laughs> because for me, I feel like that's the That's ending. the magic. Yeah. That's the magic yeah. there. You've got to have a bunch of, like, kids from Stranger Things playing. Yes, Okay, yeah. I like that. I, I really hope that is the case for, for your sake, Zeke. You've also got an Australian film of an age that takes place during the summer of 1999. It sees an 18-year-old amateur ballroom dancer have an unexpected and intense 24-hour romance with a friend's older brother. Watch the trailer for this, too. Yeah, this was this was playing at Luna, pretty sure. Yep. Looks very interesting. Reminds me of Sequin in a Blue Room, also so a is it on? Film. Is it coming to streaming, is it? Cinemas. Cinemas coming to so cinemas so this so week. So, yeah. yeah, your Lunas and whatnot. Also coming to Looney, you got Smyrna, which recounts the events of the 1922 burning of the Greece town. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, a lot of stuff coming out this week. Very exciting times, Zeke. But I'm guessing 
We're not watching any of those. No, <laughs> not to spoil everything like I did earlier in the show. But yes, we are moving into our fourth ever Cinema Sideshow Countdown Through the Decade Retrospective. Now, for those who haven't been around mm. for the previous seasons, first off, what are How you doing? Dare you? Go back and watch. <laughs> listen to every 200 episodes. Yes. But obviously, every year we do this roughly around the post-Oscars, moving into the summer blockbuster range. It's also like the graveyard time of the year where not a lot of things really happen or a lot of low-key films come mm, out. Yeah. I mean, I think this might be the last week for a while. That John- oh, the Super Mario Brothers that's coming out. The Mario, yeah. Um, but right. yeah, obviously, every year uh, we uh, put this out. We put out our, um, our polls and we have you guys vote on every decade what film we're watching. Yes. We did our first one. We actually have three ways now you can vote because yeah. it only took us five years to decide to do this. <laughs> this is probably my fault more than anything. We probably should have mentioned this at the start of the show, actually. Yeah, but, you know, obviously... Come along with us. Yeah, this could have gone in career updates, actually. Ah, oh, well. Um, we didn't think to do it. The Cinema Star <laughs> Show now has an official Instagram page. So if you would like to vote on what we're going to watch for the 2010s, because we've already got our 2020s, mm-hmm. um, we don't know what either of those films are right now. But no, we will, uh, i, I got to send you a list probably to, uh, tomorrow. As do I need to create a list um but yeah you can vote at cinema sideshow so that's at cinema sideshow if you're also you know got our personal handles which is at zkmh and at jake the clicker you can vote at those so you can vote up to three times you're really cheeky and you're really committed i felt bad i voted for the same film twice and I, i didn't want to do it a third time so i I swapped it on the third. <laughs> That's a good man. That's a good man. But yeah, we had a lot of votes. It's, it's, to start out to not with. <laughs> um, for two films that were quite obscure, so we're really happy with the turnaround on the votes for this one. Yeah, well, I guess that's true to a sense. They're definitely not mainstream films. I mean, one of them, I think one of them did get a couple of Oscar noms, and the other's a fairly underrated A24 film, I would say. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I thought this was an excellent battle, and, and looking at the results, I'm not too surprised by the results. I was equally happy to do either one of these, and I'm I'm I love the film that we're going to do next week. I don't, you haven't seen it, have you? No, no. But I haven't really. seen it either. Oh, well, there you go. But Jake, what are we watching next week in the show, Zeke? We're watching the Green Knight.
Sir Gawain, King Arthur's reckless and headstrong nephew, embarks on a daring quest to confront the eponymous Green Knight, a gigantic emerald-skinned stranger and tester of men. Um, this film is phenomenal, and I cannot wait to talk to you about it. Even if it beat out the worst person in the world, 21 to 16, yep. that's okay. I, yeah, I, I can live with that. So obviously, like I was saying in the f- prior to uh, revealing the film of the week, if you'd like to vote, you go to Cinema Sideshow at ZKMH at Cinema Side. Sorry, at Cinema Sideshow. It's one Instagram. <laughs> at ZKMH is my one, and at Jake the Clicker is your <laughs> one. And yeah, have a vote for the 2010s coming up next week. And obviously, we're going to go through decades. Yeah, yeah, we're going to go through every decade up until the 1930s. If you've never won one of these before, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with the Green Knight. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>